Chapter 10 With each massive tread of the door's feet, Tanner edged back into the crowd. Talk was really going out through the great gate. She'd believed until this last minute that he would somehow turn things his way, as he always had before. She shuddered, aware now of the damp cold of the morning air clinging to her heavy mantle. How tired she was, tired and shaky in the aftermath of the night before. Those in front of her began to move away, muttering towards the dark doorway leading back into the citadel. But she lingered to watch the last of the procession out of sight, the last flutters of the high-held pennants of red and green and black shivering in the breeze. One other, as she noticed, was still standing also, looking out after the departed procession. Gar, more like to talk than the other princes, but lesser, as though squeezed like the baleful hawkersier by some inner force. Gar turned and looked her way, as if he knew she'd still be there, and something in his stance made her feel afraid. She pulled her hood down and quickly made for the door. Too late. As she stumbled up the step, fingers tight as Torque's own gripped her elbow cruelly under the stuff of her cloak, pulling her into the hall. And who leads thee to board this day, now the pilgrim's gone? Tanner pulled back as much as she dared, conscious of people staring. Please let me go, Highness, she said from under her hood. I must attend the Queen's morning toilet. Gar laughed, and with his other hand flipped the hood back exposing her tell-tale face, eyes bruised from lack of sleep, and love-proud lips. Very well. But tonight you'll sit by me, and we shall console ourselves and drink to absent friends. She looked into the eyes so light talks, trying to hide her revulsion. The Queen has also bidden me attend her at evening board, Highness. A flash of anger. Then Gar's eyes narrowed. By the quaff, she'd only whet his appetite. He pushed her from him, knocking her back against the doorframe. Half a sun around, Faluella, is a long time. For my brother's sake, we must keep you trimmed. If you can't please me at board, then you'll please me after. 
he turned and ran up the great staircase without a backward glance. Ignoring those about her, she replaced her hood and swiftly crossed the cold floor towards the back stair, a long way around to the Queen's Tower, but the Dryad take her if she but appeared to follow him. Three flights up the winding stair left her breathless and dizzy. People passed her, scrubs mostly on this back way, from whom she was safe enough. Some men of higher rank muttering obscenities, but withholding their pinches and fumbles, for were they not all aware that she was Talk's bedmate? Even the Queen herself knew it, although she hadn't said. And why would she? Tana was nobody. And Tork had these past ten sun-arounds, being promised to the Serabroda of Clay. Tana reached the level connecting the Queen's Tower with the main pile, and leaned against the wall. She was late. The Queen would already be on her way to morning board. But it didn't matter. Tanner had lied. She was free that day. She pulled her mantle more tightly about her. What if... No. Gar would never bother to question his mother about her. He wouldn't discover this particular lie. But sooner or later... Her lies would run out, and he'd be there, waiting, and talk. Did God warn him of what he was going to do? Was talk thinking ill of her now? She walked along slowly, through the galleries leading to the aerial passageway over the central courtyard below. She had no illusions on that score. He'd forgotten her already. But even if he had, she'd promised to stay faithful. And when he came back, he'd see that she'd kept her word, that she'd resisted Gar somehow. She must, or lose all. Not for her, a concubine's bed, as Talk had promised her three nights ago. Somehow she was determined she'd prove more worthy than Broda. That she'd sworn the first day she'd seen Talk. We were just wondering if you'd be back. The two women peered into Turner's tiny cubicle at the tidy chest of drawers, the too-tidy bed, which hadn't been slept in for how long? Well, the wandering's over, Magla. Here I am. Turner slipped off her dress, wrapped herself in a length of towel, and went to the door. 
The two women made no effort to stand aside. Such a splendid leave-taking, wasn't it? The taller one, Magla, black-haired, blue-eyed like talk, a distant cousin, looked down on her. Tanner shrugged. She pushed her way past and, conscious of them treading on her heels, she went down the passage to the communal bath, which steamed and stank of cleanses and emollients at all hours of the day and night. She tossed aside her wrap and walked down the steps, feeling the warmth and sting of the salted water on her tired skin. They were staring, she knew, but she didn't care. She enjoyed it, rather. The envy, the vain search for flaws in her perfect body, the meaningful glances at the love bruises on her breasts, the bite marks on the inside of her thighs. She'd felt sorry for them once, Magla and Leyland, but no more. Leyland looked down at her. What will you do now? Who shall you have after the Goniat air? It will be hard to lie beneath a lesser lord. Turner floated belly up, let the water slip silky through her thighs. She wouldn't answer them, wouldn't give them the tiniest hook to prick her with. Of course, Magla said, it's common knowledge that he'll take his wife within the sun around of his return. But Tanner could become a concubine. Concubine? Really, Leyland? A scribe's daughter? Concubine? Over the Queen's dead body? Tanner strove to keep her face relaxed. Hadn't she weathered all this long enough? Whatever her birth rank, when her father died, hadn't the Lady Follian taken her and made her as good a lady as any of them in that place? And hadn't she in three short summer-rounds so proved her worth that on Folian's death the queen herself had personally sent for her to join the royal retinue. She sat up, turned her back on Leyland and Magla, and soaped herself all over. There's always Prince Gar. Leyland never could let well alone. Could you take her for concubine, you mean? Magla made a rude noise. The queen wouldn't let even her second-born bond with a commoner. Though, of course, as one saw, he's game for a role in his brother's warm place. Commoner. That didn't hurt. Scribe's daughter she may have been, but Folian had laid the title of lady on her in full writ with purse enough to match it. She was the Lady Tanner now and always, whatever they said or did.
Tanner sluiced off the soap, walked up out of the bath, and taking up her wrap, threw it loosely about herself. She looked at the two women, seniors past the age for making a good bonding, feeling suddenly very sad. Please excuse me, she said. I must dress. Before they could move, she was down the passage and into her room with the door closed behind her. Tanner stood on the tiny stair, halfway up or down, undecided. She'd scarce drunk a drop at supper to keep her wits clear. Gar had commanded her company for that evening, and the Queen had bade her obey. And now Gar was waiting, and there she was, skulking around the back passages like a thief. Oh, what was she to do? Suppose she hid for this night. And what about the next, and the next, and the next? She wouldn't give in, though. Whatever talk did, and he didn't doubt that even now he was consoling himself along the way, she'd keep her word taking to no other man's bed, least of all Gar's. Oh, where could she go? She thought wistfully of Talk's chamber, a haven behind his sealed doors, but the hour was much too early to risk the back gallery. She started down. She'd go to the stables. There were vacant stalls where the grooms seldom went, and she'd stay there until the third watch, when it was safe enough to creep back up to the Queen's Tower and bed. She walked down shadowed aisles, treading pungent hay and sawdust, not minding the scuffle of tiny claws, the snuffle of fires shifting in their sleep, Every three stores, dim yellow lamps lit weathered doors, shone on the names of the beasts within. She went on, past Talk's own far, past rows and rows of them, until the lights grew dim and farther between. The grooms were gone for the night, the watch dozed by the front door. She was safe. Pushing through into an empty stall, Tanner lay back on a pile of straw and looked up towards the dark skylight beyond which stars pierced the chilly sky. She sighed, feeling bereft, empty, just as she had when Forlin died. Then, as now, she sought shelter from prying eyes and groping hands, a private place where none would think to seek her out, and had, one dark night after board, found unlikely refuge here 
in a back store like this one, where she'd lain that night and many after, until she'd found the courage to live the life expected of her. She closed her eyes, relaxing in the warmth of the hay. The stables. She bit her lip, remembering what had drawn her to them the first time. Father, Sudri says you're not my father. She says, she says I'm a terrible born of the hay. Father, what does that mean? Hush, child, let me dry your face. Good little fallowellas don't use such words, and sensible ones don't listen to them. Can you remember when I was not your father? Come, and we shall see what is born of hay. They had walked down to Folion's great stables under the long, low eaves, picking up the groomsman on the way, until they came to a store in which a great black woolly car lay on its side. She had never seen a thar down before. Even as they arrived, the beast struggled to its feet and nuzzled a smaller patch half-hidden under the hay. Black, like its mother, a new-born farling, long-legged, too weak to stand, its coat still wet and sticky. The mother began to lick it. Tanna could hear the rasping clear across the stall. Yon's cleanin' on, the groom said, and briskin' life into one. Even as he spoke, the little thing struggled up and stood unsteadily on all fours. Durek looked to her, then back to the farling. Hmm, long legs you have, and curly hair. But it is not black, and I don't think it's all over you, is it, is it? And he seized her arm, pushing up the sleeve, pretending to look for Tharpile, and as ever, by the time he had finished, he'd had her laughing again, jigging up and down in delight, her doubts forgotten. For many years she'd believed him. And why shouldn't she? Who in the castle Fulian? Never doubted the word of Durak the scribe. But in the later years, as her breasts budded and blossomed, the whispers prevailed, and her suspicions had grown that she was indeed a garibald born of the hay, a foundling that, for reasons best known to himself, the lonely scholar had fostered giving her the love of a father she'd never known. And her mother? Gone, he always said, and would never say more. Those were the happy years, 
when still a stick child, she'd sat by Durat's hearth, tracing letters on a slate. Safe from the hard castle women who scolded her and harried her, Selton bending her to a Baluella's ways. Happy years, warm years, and secret. Don't tell anyone, Durak would say, tapping his hook of a nose. If they knew what we were at, they'd box our ears and throw us to the Adahi. But why, she'd asked him over and over, just to hear the answer. Because, and here a sly smile would crease the long dry face, they say this is man's work, that a faloella, especially a delicious faloella like you, has the brain of a, a thaw. And at that, remembering the great she-thaw lying on her side, and the little fowling beside her, Tanner would giggle and drop her hands together delightedly between her knees, and set to work again. She learned not only letters with him, but numbers, and the motions of the stars. You, he'd told her once, are the cleverest Faloella alive. But never, never, ever let men know it. You'll never make a binding else. And he'd smiled to ease the harshness of that truth. Tears came suddenly, hot tears of anger and loss. No one. She had no one. No one. She turned onto her side, rubbing her face hard in disgust. This would get her nowhere. At least she had clothes on her back and food to eat and a decent roof over her head, she who'd started life a hay-spawned gatherball. From stable to lady, from lady to queen, and if queen, then she must begin to act like one. She pulled her mantle closely about her, curled up and fell asleep. The voices woke her. How long had she slept? She looked up at the skylight. Not long, as she would guess. She knelt up quietly, listening. Men down the far end. Grooms on some errand. Should she slip out through the side door before they turned the corner, or stay? Too late. They came. She slipped beneath the hay. They stopped at her store wicket. Not grooms. 
not anybody from Gagnac. In fact, the dialect was so strange that she couldn't understand a word, save one. Aravac. The creak of a wicket. Hers. By Forthia and Demiel, she don't look. The voices continued. No. Next door. She lifted her face and squinted under the partition. Huge feet, rough-booted, flattened the hay. Hands scuffed it aside, uncovering. Her breath came sharp. Had they heard? The body of a man. Another sound. The soft throbbing of a far being led towards them. The body was lifted off the hay, and the wicket creaked again. She would see the fowl's hooves quite clearly out in the passage. The boots gathered around them. The men were laying the body across the back of the thaw. A rustling, as of rough hide, they were covering the body. The boots, the thaw hooves, moved off again, down the empty aisle and out through the very side door that she'd had a mind to take. Strangers, a dead man hidden in the deserted part of the stables, where even the grooms seldom went. Could not that dead man have been the one Aravac had fought with? But how would strangers know where to hide their comrade's body until it was safe to remove him unless they had been directed here by someone from inside the citadel. Tanner began to shake. Oh, that she'd never come into this place. Yet hadn't she promised to be Talk's eyes and ears? She waited a minute or two, then creaked open her store wicket. The aisle was deserted. She crept out, ran to the side door, and peered through. Nothing. Only darkness and drifting cloud shadow. Doubly grateful now for her brown mantle, she slipped across the rough ground, a weedy no-man's land behind the main tower, wondering where they would take the far without being seen. She walked fast across the waste ground between barracks and citadel. This was the only way they could possibly take. But how would they get past the guards? She was going so fast that she almost bumped into them. Why? They were going by the barracks itself, along a wooded path privy to but a few. Hadn't Talk himself taken it one restless night when he would walk and pin her to every tree? Suddenly 
one of the men detached himself and started back towards her. She shrank behind a wide trunk, flinching as he passed her by inches. Which way now? She couldn't follow both men at once. Should she go with the body, or see where the other was headed in the citadel? She stood a moment, irresolute in the buffered dark. Then turning, she followed the one man back the way they'd come. Tanner slowed, her throat blood raw, her chest heaving. How long since she'd run like this? Ahead of her, the man's shadow merged with the massive dark of the citadel wall. She must move on or lose him. Her sudden skirts flapped between her ankles, and the heel of one slipper was loose. What if he sensed her? heard her even, and was waiting just ahead to catch her as she passed. Before her was the central courtyard around the king's tower, into which all the outer courtyards led. She caught sight of the man passing under the flame of a draughty lantern. Surely he wouldn't dare step out into the open at this hour, when so many people were about. She was right. He turned aside and made for a path leading around the peripheries. The backs of her hands pricked. Just ahead was the side entrance to Torx Tower and the yard where Arabak's blood trail had run out. Was that where he and the dead man had met? Had Aravac done as she was now doing? Followed his man here to this spot, and then... And then... Found out too late that the hunter himself was hunted by another to his rear? A slight sound behind her, and a massive hand whirled her round by her shoulder. A glint of steel and something sharp pressed against her chest. The Lady Tanner. What brings you here at this hour? Eric. She stared up, unable to breathe. The sword point pricked her mantle. Well, she looked around. The man was gone. I was following someone, she almost said, but she stopped, staring up at the general. She might ask the same of him. She felt the trembling begin again, somewhere in her knees, felt it spreading up through her whole body, raising the hairs in her flesh. What if Ferric were the one behind everything? The king's left member striking at the royal heart, and hers, if she made but one false step now. She looked down at the sword point lost in the folds of her mantle. Ferric made no move to lower it. Well, 
she forced herself to meet his look, to speak, hoping to mask the shape with laughter. Why I confess, General, that since the pilgrim left, I've been pulled to and fro, pleasing this one and that, and satisfying none. And now I am late even to Prince Gar's chambers. Derek's eyes gleamed cold as the faint starlight on his blade. Now, right now, he would kill her, impale her on the point of his sword as a butterfly on a branch, if he so chose. Her smile began to wilt. Derek loosed his hold and lowered his blade. Tell me, he began, but in that moment Tanner's name came clear across the yard, and Leyland, swinging a lantern, ran towards them across the tussocky grass. There you are! Leyland raised the lantern to Tanner's face. Where have you been? She sniffed. In the stables, as I guess. She half turned then, affecting to see Ferric for the first time. She bobbed coyly, looking from Tanner to the general, then back again. Madam, the Queen sent me first to the Prince Gar's quarters to fetch you. His adage said that you weren't there, and that Gar had sent everywhere for you. I hear he's quite put out. Leyland looked slyly to the general. What? Did she think them to have been lying together in the hay? What has happened? Why does the queen seek me? She's had a falling attack. The apothecary has ordered her to prove for full twenty-one days, and we prepare to leave at dawn, including you. Leave? But she couldn't. She mustn't. Not right now. She pulled herself together. You see, General? She looked up, coquettish, concerned. My sins have quite outrun me. If you'll excuse me, I will attend the Queen. She lay in her cubicle, ears pricked. Was Ferric traitor to the King? And did he think she knew it? Or had she managed to look the wanton fool? If not, she caught her sound beyond her door, raised her head from the pillow. She sank back again, her neck stiff with strain. If Ferret sent an assassin, no one could stop him. Would he seek her breast? Or her throat? Would it hurt? If so, would he stop her mouth with his hand? She couldn't bear that. Better she go to sleep so as not to know. I'll be your eyes and ears. On this very first night she'd seen and heard plenty. Those men in the stables, the body, and Ferric in the courtyard. He'd stopped her from following that stranger. 
from seeing where he went. Now what? If she stayed alive, what should she do now? She'd promised to get word to talk. But of what? How and where? And how could such as she reach room alone? And even if she got there, what would she say? Not enough. Not yet. No. She must brave it out. She must survive. Find out more. But not, she thought, with a sinking feeling for the next twenty-one days, not down on that empty shore. What if things happened while she was away? Terrible things! And she too late to do anything! Maybe she could make herself ill and stay behind. Maybe no one would notice if she didn't go. Maybe...